if you like to be creative, you know, I think one of the things that's attractive about CNE for people who like writing is that you're using both right and left side brain functions. There's latitude for more creativity than perhaps in, uh, you know, regulatory writing or some other part of, of medical writing. And so you could be working on different types of projects within a given month. Um, and, and, and that's very sort of interesting and stimulating. Welcome to this new episode of Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD. Today, I have the great pleasure of having with me Alex Hausen. Alex uh, is a medical writer, educator, and podcaster. A former trauma operating room nurse, she was faculty at the universities of Aberdeen and Edinburgh in Scotland for a decade, where she taught undergraduate and graduate courses in the sociology of the body, gender, and health. She left academia in 2004 and subsequently built a thriving freelance medical writing business in the U.S., that specialized in creating content for continuing medical education in the health professions. Alex now shares her deep expertise in healthcare and education with new to the field medical writers. Through courses, coaching and community, she teaches writers how to confidently create education content for health professionals and build a sustainable CMECE writing niche. Welcome to Beyond the Thesis, Alex. I'm super happy to have you here today. Oh, thanks, David. It's, it's great to be here. I love the, the, the live vibe, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's great. And uh, the reason I started doing these live recordings is, first, uh, it allows people to see how, you know, how an interview is recorded and, and how the conversation goes and, and how naturally uh, or clunky sometimes it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, I think for for us, for me, uh, who 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 are you know who I'm interviewing, and for the guest, it's a, it's a different energy to be live. Uh, it's not that it's stressful, but I think it's different somehow, and I, I like it. I enjoy it like this. Well, you certainly have a little more uh, adrenaline and probably a lot more cortisol spiking because of the live yes. aspect uh, and all the potential for tech to go wrong. Exactly, and and they have happened. I've lost the image. I've, I've now I've lost contact with people. But you know, in the end, it, it's uh, it's just more to tell, uh, more stories to tell about the different uh, the different recordings and the different interviews. So it's it's great. <laughs> I don't yeah, stress. Yeah, that's about good. That. You're very relaxed about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Alex, um, of course, we are going to talk uh, about medical communications, specifically about CME. See, like I was saying before, because I'm here in Montreal and, and there's a there's quite a certain number of agencies here that work in that domain. Uh, I've actually done some translation because, again, because it's Montreal, some translation uh, in that domain. But we, we're going to go into that. Uh, but to start, I'd, I'd really like to... Uh, to share uh, to the people watching, to the people listening, a little bit of your journey because we've heard about nursing, you know, in, in the operating room. We've heard about teaching at university, sociology of the body, a, a term that I had never heard before. Can you talk a little bit about your your journey through health, but also science, and uh, and how you kind of got to today? Uh, to I, I imagine. Not a very straight line, but more of a winding road. 
Exactly, a winding road, liquid life, as uh, Zygmunt Bauman, who is uh, was a, a, an eminent uh, sociologist. I'm saying is or was. I'm not actually sure if he's still living. He's very, very old. Um, I uh, yeah. So how do all these things fit together? I I originally trained as uh, a nurse in Scotland back in the 80s. I'm very old. Um, and worked for many years uh, as a trauma OR nurse and then went to university in 87, I think, uh, is when I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Edinburgh and fell in love with, I'm, I've always been, uh, you know, someone who loves learning. Uh, even when I was a little kid, my nose was always in a book. Um, I was always trying to kind of find out, you know, where ideas came from, what things meant, that kind of thing. And always valued the um, the things that we read and learn about, you know, what they what they teach us. And always was committed to the idea that we can learn from pretty much everything that shows up in our in our lives. So when I got to university in the the late eighties, I I knew I just landed in. Uh, a treasure trove, uh, a place that I really wanted uh, to be. And so when I finished my undergraduate degree, I really I kind of didn't want to leave. And uh, doing some kind of postgraduate work was the obvious way to to hang around for a bit longer. Um, and so I uh, applied for some funding um, from the Economic and Social Research Council, as it then was, I'm not sure if it's still that uh, in the UK, to, to do my my PhD at the University of, of Edinburgh. And while I was there, um, I actually had a baby in the second year of my uh, my thesis, as, as you do. Um, and uh, in my third year, I got a full-time job uh, teaching in the department where I was doing my, my, my PhD. So that allowed me to hang around academia for quite a bit longer. And, uh, you know, had a full teaching load uh, as well as as finishing my my research, um, and then from there moved to the University of Aberdeen after I finished my PhD and was there for for several years. Um, we we moved. I moved with my family in two thousand and four to the states where I had lived as a child, actually, um, and that's where the path became very wobbly and very uh, broken. Uh, lots of potholes in terms of, of uh, you know, what I was going to do next. I, we'd moved our family 6,000 miles. Um, I had no academic network in the US really to speak of. And so it was pretty challenging to get back into academia on a different con continent. So uh, from there, I, I started to think about, well, what can I do? What are my skills? and really take a deep dive into how I was going to use what I was able to do uh, to create some new, some new trajectory, some new path. Um, and that's what got me into actually editing first and then, and then writing and editing within a, an academic context. So I, I edited for a group called Science Docs, which is still around in the US. Um, I think they're based out of Oregon. And they provide editing services for our graduate students. Um, yeah, and so kind of you know working with graduate students to um, polish the language 
uh, in their their thesis prior to submission, just on a very kind of surface level. Um, and from there, moved into medical writing. And I can talk a little bit more about that um, if you want me to. Yeah, well, uh, let's see where, where we go from here. A first question, uh, and then, you know, this mm, story of, you know, crossing the ocean, moving a family, or, or just, anyway, moving on your own and leaving a network behind or, a, or a, a, you know, a, a social network also uh, behind. It, it's a story a lot of us who go to graduate and doc and postdoc live through that. Um, j just to kind of put some, um, bring some uh, metrics <laughs> and to kind of uh, normalize uh, the, the time frame of, of these things happening, how long did it take for you to, you know, find your bearings in a way and find this, uh, find science docs and, and, uh, and then get that first, uh, yeah, that first job doing, doing this, uh, this editing work. How long did it take? You know, I'd say six to nine months. Um, in retrospect, that doesn't actually feel like very long. At the time, it felt like a, it a felt, long It time. feels huge, right? It feels yeah. enormous. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I spent a lot of time on the internet, try, just trying to kind of figure out what was out there. And this is, you know, this is back in 2004. So everything was a bit slower and uh, a, different, a different infrastructure, I think, to, you know, how you can find things. Um, and so a lot of exploration, um, a lot of digging and trawling to try and kind of figure out, um, you know, what the options were. And then stumbling, of course, serendipity always plays a role, uh, I think, when you're, when you're in that kind of space. And so, you know, inevitably or eventually stumbled on some uh, groups like Science Docs that looked as though they might be, uh, you know, an option at least in the early days excellent so yeah i just i just want people to to kind of hear how much time it took someone to, to figure out something because i think people might think oh i just got this degree and so and it's the best degree there is and so now i should you know open a page choose a position and get hired and uh, especially if you're also moving and changing spaces geographically, there's you know it adds to the to the, the 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 complexity of the of the process. But it does take time to get that that first position. And I think getting out of graduate school and into the job market is kind of akin to moving countries because you're changing spaces. And unless you've done a lot of networking before, and you said you arrived without any network. Um, it takes time and, and it's normal. It, it is normal and it does take time. And I should also add that, you know, at the same time, you know, there was kind of overlap in looking for alternative work outside academia um, uh, to actually applying for academic positions. And that was, you know, that's a, it's a tortuous process. Um, and I think Something interesting happened while I was doing that, which was that I realized I didn't actually want to be in academia anymore. You know, because there were certain aspects of it that um, I could see weren't really going to fit with where I was in my life at that time. My kids were still a bit younger um, and we'd moved 6,000 miles. And also, it's, it's a grind. It can be a grind. And so I think I was beginning to feel some of that 
um, it, you know, at, at the same time. And so in retrospect, those challenging negative experiences of, you know, not getting, not getting interviews, never mind, not getting shortlisted, um, actually challenged me and encouraged, invited me. Let's just say it, they invited me to really take a hard look at how I was going to use my, um, my academic expertise and, um, and my identity as an academic. And that took a lot longer to shed. I mean, I, I literally took a couple of days uh, sometime around 2007 and shredded all the paperwork from my thesis and from uh, a lot of the teaching that I'd been doing, um, you know, as, a, as an assistant professor, as a lecturer, um, as the term is in the UK. So it's a process for sure. It is. It is a process. It's interesting, this question that you just touched uh, upon of identity or self-identity, because it's true that for, for many reasons, the path, you know, going the path to like master's, PhD, postdoc, etc., is one uh, where you're kind of led to disidentify with a lot of things, soft, often with interests and hobbies, uh, with your country of origin, with to identify with this thing, which is the academic career, uh, and and of course I'm generalizing. You know, <clears throat> academics. I know people who are academics and have many many interests. And but especially when you move countries and you're uh, you uh, you know you you go or you go into this prestigious program, you know it's easy to fall in what I consider is a trap to over-identify with that. And the, the trap is that it's a very difficult process. You might decide to leave. And then if if you've shared all of these other things, and this is the only one you're hanging to, you might feel that I failed at life. And it's not it's not that at all. But I, I find it super interesting that, that it took a few years for you to go and say, okay, I need to say goodbye to this, <laughs> this thing that I had held so dear for, uh, for, so, so, for so long. Yeah, and I, I actually think that's really important. I see this um, in the people that I work with who are kind of trying to break into medical writing as, as CME writers. You know, they're often, they're academics, they're clinicians, they're bench scientists. So we're talking about, you know, heavy duty people in terms of their intellectual capital and their ability usually to get things done. And they move out of these contexts for a number of different reasons, from feeling frazzled to being completely burned out, um, arrive in the field of uh, medical writing and they're attracted to that because they're lifelong learners and they're information synthesizers, and then have this kind of identity crisis because they feel as though they don't know anything in this new world. Um, and of course they do, we all do, but I think you do need to take stock. I, I think you do need to be intentional about taking a little bit of time and effort and energy to figure out what your attachment is and then practice non-attachment and somehow manage to uh, let some things go. Yeah, no, I agree. And one of the other ways that I, I try to, to get young, especially young graduate students to start working on this is to diversify their their portfolio of interests during graduate school 
And I know it's tough because your PI will want you to have just one interest in life, <laughs> which is your thesis. But I think it's super important to start early on to widen your horizons and think, okay, you know, I have one one chance in five uh, of becoming a professor, so I need to take care of the other four. They, it, they're, they're much larger than that one, and uh, I cannot not look at them and not invest in at least maps, you know, starting to map them even during graduate school. It's, it's difficult, uh, but I, it's, it's what I'm trying to do, and so I try to do with this podcast, which is to expose people to to, uh, to people like you and to what they've done and to how they got there and to uh, the existential crisis they, they went through while reaching where they are. So, so I, I really appreciate you sharing all yeah. this. No, absolutely. And I, and I should say that, you know, I, I did my PhD well, a long time ago in a very different context as well. You know, I didn't have a PI. My work was in the social sciences and sociology um, the, the focus at that time was very much, you know, you, you get your funding, you, you, you have to be a kind of self-starting, you determine the research question, you, you, you know, you do the recruiting, the scheduling, the, I, I worked, you know, I trained as a qualitative researcher. So, you know, the interviewing, the transcripts, all, all of that. And I had supervisors, but it, it also wasn't a taught. Uh, graduate program so you were pretty much on your own to try and kind of figure out um, how to to get things done but I think the thing that really helped me um, to your point about cultivating those other interests or those other dimensions was when I started working as faculty in the department because it was a very um top heavy expertise department. I was a very, very junior member. But, um, you know, I got put in charge of running the department seminars. And so that brought me into contact with, um, you know, eminent uh, sociologists all over the world. Um, it helped me to think about how to create connection. And it gave me skills in, uh, you know, it gave me admin skills and kind of holding all the pieces together to get a seminar program up and running. Um, and, and there were other things, too, that um, because of the circumstances in which I did my, my uh, graduate work, I actually was able to cultivate some of those other threads that I think have helped me post-academia. Um, post but I couldn't agree more. I think it's really important to have those um, other, other uh, things in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, and and like you say, experiences that are not totally departed from from your being in your department and and doing your research, like what you did, uh, are are not you know are not so de not not that demanding, and the the gain that you can have from them is uh, is huge. You're not the first person sharing here on the show how you know starting or or. Uh, yeah, launching with other colleagues a seminar series has really resonated in their professional life afterwards, and also had an effect on their on their uh, even on their academic career too. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm super grat grateful that you that you're sharing all this. Now, to the to the transition from okay, editing, uh, you know, editing uh, content for graduate students to medical writing there's a there's a, a switch there it's not the same space it's not the same universe how did that transpire 
Let's see. Well, it transpired because I'm not an editor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Which I is can... a, it's true. People train to be editors. I, I I'm exactly. Very, yeah. And I've I can't emphasize. <laughs> yeah, I can't emphasize that. Uh, you know enough that um, people who are trained as copy editors, substantive editors, um, and lots of layers in between, you know, are trained to do that work. And I knew pretty early on that, you know, I could make a decent job because I, I'd supervised students and so I and I taught so I could make a decent job of providing some kind of feedback. But um, I knew that's what wasn't really where I wanted to kind of put my my energies. Um, and I had started to do some consulting work for a couple of nonprofit organizations that involved a lot of research and writing. And those were the other two kind of uh, skills in my toolbox that I thought I could, um, you know, make something of. Uh, so I, you know, started to do a little bit more freelance research and writing and kind of stumbled into medical writing. Stumbles the wrong word. A lot of the um, research and consulting that I was doing was in the kind of nonprofit public health world. And so, you know, that's not a huge leap into writing about um, medicine and healthcare. I found the American Medical Writers Association and realized, okay, there's a whole world actually um, in which um, people do write uh, medical and healthcare focused content. I could do that. Um, and so started to kind of poke around the margins of that organization, joined in 2010 or 2008, I think. And that was a really great um, kind of opening up of all the possibilities within uh, medical writing. That's when I found continuing medical education. I went to a workshop. Um, hosted by uh, uh, a colleague and someone who's now become a very good friend. And I realized at that point I'd landed in a sweet spot because continuing medical ed education is it's about clinical work, it's about teaching and learning, and it's about research. Yeah. And, and if you're, like you said, if you're knowledge hungry, you get to learn about uh, a lot, a lot of interesting things. If, you know, you've been, you were in healthcare before, so I guess, you, you you had you know there was uh, some kind some kinship there. Uh, I can totally see yeah I can totally see how how that was a, a good fit for you. But I feel I still feel that um, it's a very particular sub subspace in uh, or subset in in medical writing, continuing medical education. Uh, from the projects I've uh, I've worked on. Uh, and again, I worked. Uh, I, I translated. Uh, I translated content, um, but it, it looks to me like there's 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 a bunch of rules. Uh, there's a, there's um, uh, collaboration between agencies and universities. Can you talk a little bit about? about because at le uh, right now you said oh, I I went to this workshop. Uh, it looked like a good fit for me, but I'm sure you've had a lot to learn in those first months where you were you know, launch into your first projects because it's it's quite complex or it can be quite complex, you know, mm -hmm. lawyers, etc. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it took more than a few months, actually. It took a few years really to kind of peel back the layers. You're right. Continuing medical education is a very subterranean world. And I think unless you're kind of somewhere on the margins 
touching the work or you are a clinician, um, it's, you, you know, the chances are you haven't really, you haven't really stumbled across it. Um, you talked about agencies, which leads me to think you were probably working with non-accredited continuing medical education. Um, and there's a division between accredited and non-accredited. So there's even, you know, another layer of complexity there. So the, here, the, the ones that I've worked on have always been uh, an agency in uh, conjunction with the university, let's say McGill University, and, and an agency. And it, uh, from what I remember, and, and I do remember anyway, because I translated different things to do with the, the training, that they, and I don't know what, if, if this is what you mean by accredited, but the, the doctor, the MDs that go through those trainings then can have some credits uh, for, uh, for you know, that they need to keep their license, et cetera. Is that what you mean by accredited? I, I wonder. Yeah. So uh, what accreditation means is in, in North America, uh, although there are some differences between Canada and the U.S., um, is that, you know, if you're a healthcare professional, um, physician, nurse, pharmacist, um, other things to other uh, um, specialty uh, designations as well, um, you have to get so many credits every year to maintain your licensure, to maintain your cert your certification, to you know continue being fit for practice. In the U.S., each state determines its own uh, the number of credits that um, clinicians have to you know attain every year. Um, and in the U.S., that system is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and there are seven other accreditation bodies and the American Medical Writers, uh, the American um, Medical Associations involved. In Canada, the Royal College of Physicians has a agreements with the Accreditation Council for CNE in the U.S. In Europe and the U.K., the accreditation system is completely different, um, and and often very country-based, and even within those countries, specialty-based. So the accreditation system itself is incredibly complex. Um, but that's what accredited medica uh, um, medical education is, or education for health professionals. Okay. And of course, there are really good reasons for that, because <laughs> it's the people who take care of us. So they need, <laughs> exactly. they need and, to follow and the standards and rules. And they need to follow standards and rules. And also the education needs to be free from commercial interest. It needs to be free from industry bias and influence. And in the US, there's been a few cases where, you know, that has come under scrutiny um, at the federal level. And that has led to a lot of changes in, you know, accreditation regulatory frameworks and so on. So it's important. Yeah, yeah. So so in a way, another interesting aspect of, of CME is that if you really interested in that and interested in how health works and health policy works there's there's an aspect of that in it but again it depends on where you end up in the uh, i guess in the company or in the well it wouldn't be the anyway in the in the cme uh how, how do you call these uh, these um, entities on on in the states who do C, who produce cme content education providers i mean they 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 are actually called entities um, but they're, they're education providers. And there are different types of providers from medical specialty societies like the American College of Cardiology to, um, you know, federal um, 
organizations to medical education companies, which often have some connection to publishers um, or or standalone to create, um, uh, you know, uh, CME and CE, often in collaboration with um, other organizations like universities or medical schools and that kind of thing. Okay. And when you say C, when you say CE, it's it's just continuing education, continuing education for health professionals. So CME in the US, at least, is very particularly focused on physicians. Continuing education uh, more broadly is you know nurses, pharmacists, dentists, osteopaths, um, you know the whole gamut. I think it's interesting, and again, it can be depending on your your. Uh you know, the, your point of entry and, and why you're gravitating towards medical writing, it may be of interest to you to know these things and to know um, to know the type of uh, mechanisms and the type of uh, structure that is behind this type of work. But now let's get back to the work. What When you did that workshop that you mentioned a few minutes ago, what, what can you give two or three elements that, you know, that gave you that aha moment of okay th this is this is where i want to go what what are elements of the work uh, of of writing for for uh, cme that caught your attention and that you felt okay this is this is some some place i can really you know leverage my strengths and and uh, and create a career and flourish well, I think the main thing uh, was really that, you know, because it was education for health professionals and I had been a health professional, um, I knew that I could continue to contribute to clinical care, uh, you know, in some way. And that was very appealing because I, you know, I'd been out of nursing for um, several years. There were definitely aspects of nursing that I missed um, in terms of, you know, having contact with patients, being able to make a difference in people's lives, being able to, um, you know, problem solve on a daily basis. So that aspect of it was definitely appealing. I had no idea it existed. Um, it, it, it didn't really exist when I was a nurse in Scotland. Um, the system there is slightly different. It's called continuing professional development. That did come in around 1996, but initially for physicians, not for nurses. So I hadn't been exposed to uh, continuing education um, when I was a clinician. So that that part of it definitely um, was very appealing. And then the other things that um, that really pulled me were that I knew I could use my writing skills. I knew I could use my research skills. And I knew that, you know, I knew teaching and learning. And so um, I was pretty confident that I would be able to sort of factor that into, into, into the mix somehow. Of course, you're always learning uh, new things and the world of teaching and learning has changed significant, significantly. Um, uh, so that's definitely a part that is constantly evolving for me. Um, but I think those were the, the main things. There was alignment between professional interest, uh, clinical experience, and my current skill set um, at that time that uh, kind of pulled me forward. Mm -hmm. It made you confident that you could, you could step into that space. Now, you did say that it took some years to learn about, you know, all that CME uh, contains or comprises. And, uh, and I guess also to, to get 
you know, feel that you um, were, uh, you know, you you were, um, how can I say, um, professionally that you were bringing all to the table that you could in that space because you were, uh, let's say, a novice. Uh, it's a complex thing. Um, did you? Would you say that uh, you've had like like uh, imposter uh, feelings at that time? Um, and I'm saying this because I, I I know a lot of people who are who ask about, for example, medical writing. I always think, oh, am I going to be good at this? Um, you know what? You know how 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 did my PhD prepare me to be a, a writer? I don't I don't understand it. How was it for you, those first years, you know, that, that learning curve? Um, how was it for you internally? And and how was the process of appropriating yourself of all the, these skills and this knowledge that was first uh, kind of invisible to you or at least unknown? Yeah, it's such a great question. I think... Um... Patchy is the short answer. <laughs> Patchy is a great word. I like it. <laughs> um, you know, how to start answering that question? Well, first of all, I'm a pragmatist. And so I, I approach life with the idea that most problems can be solved. Most problems in front of me can be solved. I'll, I'll figure it out. I'm always saying to my kids, okay, we'll figure it out. That's how I approach life. Um, and so when I, at each stage, I encountered some new type of problem, you know, I didn't know how to do a particular project, I didn't know how to find clients, I didn't know um, what, where to find solid information uh, to help me build content, I didn't know uh, what all these accreditation rules and regulations really meant, um, I didn't know who my clients, where they fit into the ecosystem. At each stage, um, you know, there's always a way that you can do some digging and 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 figure stuff out, and you know you combine that with your uh, ethos as uh, as a graduate student. Uh, you know, as somebody who's been through graduate school and who's who's done a a, a PhD, who's who's been in that research world. Um, you know, one of the things that that experience gives you is be tenacious. And so, uh, you know, I think if you've if you've been in academia as a graduate student, you're you're going to learn some version of tenacity. Um, so you just keep digging and poking, and you know, trying to kind of figure out a way to solve the problem in in front of you, and and get access to more and better information. Um, I think to your point about imposter syndrome, I. I prefer to think about that in terms of self-doubt. You know, imposter syndrome is a very, um, it's very much attached to kind of white middle-class affluent uh, college educated young women. That's where the original search, that's where the research originated. And I know there's a whole kind of literature around that, but there is actually um, increasingly a pushback from women of color in particular against the idea of imposter syndrome because um, because it's a concept of privilege 
And so I've stopped thinking about um, those types of experiences in terms of imposter syndrome and started to think about them in terms of self-doubt, which I think everybody has. That's part of life. That's part of being being human. You have self-doubt when you're a graduate student. You know, can I do the work? Can I do the research? Am I smart enough? I think my internal narrative for decades was, I'm not sure if I'm clever enough. Well, of course, it's got nothing to do with being clever. It's to do with all sorts of other other things. So I think that, um, you know, in those, not just in those first few years, you know, self-doubt doesn't really, it doesn't magically disappear. You get more confident, you get more experience, and then you hit a new problem and you think, oh, I don't know how to do this. You know, and it all comes uh, tumbling down again. Um, so yes, there, there, there was a lot of self-doubt. And I think for me, that lack of knowledge about what is this world that I've found myself in was a big contributor to self-doubt because you don't know if, if what you're doing is really meeting all the expectations of the various, you know, people that you're, that you're working with. And as a freelancer, you don't always get feedback on your work beyond, okay, this is great, we're moving on. You don't get that kind of detailed feedback that you get in grad school. Um, uh, and sometimes you don't even get that in grad school. Um, and so you only know if your work is good if you A, get paid, and B, the, the same client rehires you for another project, and then you can take that as an indication. So you have to do a lot of that, um, self-doubt excavation and management yourself. Um, and I do think there are tools. I think I developed tools over time that, that have helped me to do that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's not, I'm not immune to self, self-doubt for sure. Mm -hmm. No, but being a pragmatic, I think, you know, it's, it, it's probably a, a good way to, it probably, probably helps you when you hit a wall saying, okay, how am I going to get over this wall, under this wall, go around this wall, let's, we'll find a way. <laughs> Knock Excellent. down a brick or two. <laughs> I mean, that's another way through the wall. <laughs> yeah. Now, Alex, uh, that's, that's interesting. And, 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 um. I hadn't. I haven't uh, found. Actually, I just had an interview not so long ago uh, about uh, the imposter. Actually, there's another thing happening is that people are averting this the the syndrome. And so imposter feelings, imposter phenomenon. There's different ways people are, are, are alluding or talking about it. But um, I think that's because the concept is problematic. It, it is problematic, and and syndrome has also this kind of health you know this kind of yeah, it's it pathologized like it's yeah. pathologized in any case absolutely um we, you know there's a, there's another whole episode about that so people people can go hear about that but now about, about specific skills to do or about specific ways of working to do with with writing for for cme and because I, I just want to kind of give a little uh, a little picture and we we're kind of reaching the end of the interview but a little picture of what your day-to-day -day is and you've you've already mentioned two or three things that i think may and will be of interest to, to my listeners to, which which are getting clients how does that happen uh, keeping clients well that depends on again like you said on on if they are satisfied with how you work or with your style there's there's different aspects there but uh can you talk a little bit about the the day-to-day -day of of working in that space because i imagine with the people you coach you know they probably arrive with some common questions or maybe some questions of 
is my skill set you know enough to be working in CME? Can you talk a little bit about uh, about that? What, what what skills are required? What tasks are common? Uh, what a, what a project looks like? Uh, and and I let you choose. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, there's lots of different way, questions there. Which way you want to look at it from? Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the advantages of being in CME is that you know there are lots of different types of projects that you can work on, from uh, needs assessments, um, which are documents which you know identify problems in clinical care and clinical practice, and use education as a solution to those problems. And so you're kind of writing about clinical practice gaps and performance gaps and um, crafting learning objectives and helping the education provider, the client that you're working with, um, really map out a solid story to get some grant funding you know, for an education program. You can work on the education activities themselves from um, you know, text-based uh, content um, to interactive patient cases, which are housed online, to escape rooms, to podcast scripts, to quizzes. Um, there's a lot of different formats. And so if you like to be creative, you know, I think one of the things that's attractive about CME for um, people who like writing is that you're bring you're using both right and left uh, side brain functions. It's, it's a little, there's latitude for more creativity than perhaps in, uh, you know, regulatory writing or some other part of, of medical writing. And so to answer your question about, you know, day in the life, you could be working on different types of projects within a given month. Um, and, and, and that's very sort of interesting and stimulating. In terms of finding clients, um, you know, there's a there's an art and a science to that. Uh, at the very beginning, I was really old school and literally knocked on doors um, and called people up on the phone or or sent them cold emails. Um, that's not the most efficient way uh, to find clients, for sure. I connected um, pretty early on in my freelance career with um, a marketing specialist called uh, Marketing Mentor. Uh, marketing Mentor is a woman called Elise Bennon, um, and I can provide uh, information uh, to put in your, your show notes because she works with you know, lots of different people, but especially creatives and writers. And she, she really... Um, teaches uh, a way of finding clients that is generosity-based and relationship-based. And so at the very beginning, really, of my sort of freelance writing career, I focused on building relationships. Um, and this is where networks come in, and this is where uh, your capacity to connect with people and um, to be generous and share what you know uh, really pay off in the long in the long run. And if, you, if you've been in a graduate program, if you've done your PhD, you have lots of things to share. You, you know lots of things. Um, so I, I really kind of invested a lot of time and effort in trying to kind of build relationships with people uh, in, in my field. And the main way I did that was actually by attending, um, there's a huge kind of annual conference. So I've done that pretty much every year for the last, uh, yeah, 13, 14 years. And um, 
you know, arrange to meet people and have coffee with them and conversations um, and really sort of try to build those relationships out. And that's really helped to find clients because then you have, um, you know, a, a more solid connection between you than uh, doing what I was doing at the beginning, which was, you know, calling people up out of the blue. And sometimes that did pay off, but it, it's, an, it's an energy suck. <laughs> you know, and I, I definitely wouldn't recommend it. Um, I would recommend building relationships because then you can share, you can be generous, and people remember that. Um, and they're gonna, they're gonna, you're gonna be top of mind when they're thinking about projects. And at the beginning, when you started going to that conference, what, in what capacity were you going? How, you know, how were you making the most of the of the conference in terms of of meeting people and and creating genuine relationships with them this is again me thinking of the listener yeah just trying to kind of emulate what you did yeah absolutely and i think not you didn't wouldn't even need to be in in the field that i'm in you know to use these these techniques um what i've always tried to do is you know find out who's going to the conference and um Different conferences have different ways of sharing this information, but you know, getting a list of ten attendees, figuring out um, whether they work for a company that you want to perhaps start building a relationship with, uh, with a view to doing some work for them, doing a little bit of research around the types of projects they do, whether they hire freelance writers, and then reaching out to them. I'm not sure if conferences do this. No, I think they do when you've registered. You get their email. You have contact with them, so you can you can send them a message. On most conferences have apps now, so send them a message on the conference app and say, you know, you're going to be at the conference. You're really interested in what they're doing around X. You'd love to have a conversation about that, because people want to have conversations. They want to connect to tell you about themselves. They they don't want to listen to you talking about yourself necessarily until you have that connection. So get your list. Figure out who you want to talk to. Send them a message and say you want to you, you want to hear them talk about um, X. And then when you're having those conversations at the conference, you can start to kind of seed information about what you do and how you can help them. I think that's the other part of that relationship building aspect is people really want to know how you can solve their problem. And so doing a little bit of research ahead of time and um, figuring out what is it that you could bring that would actually uh, help them move the needle a little bit. I, that's such an overused phrase, but it's the one that comes to mind at the moment. Um, that's, that's often a good kind of tactic uh, just to kind of get the ball rolling. And then after the conference, you follow up with them. You know, I really loved our conversation. Uh, you were talking about Project X. Um, I could help you do why. And so, you know, you, you, you keep that momentum going after the conference uh, as well. And I know that, you know, a lot of people, for a lot of people that face-to-face -face, um, connection and networking can be, can be challenging and can be hard work. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes a little frightening, but when you flip the script and you think about it in terms of um, you want to listen to what they have to say and you want to that you want them to go away thinking you can help them somehow i think that takes the fear out of it a little bit and of course so much networking is online now 
LinkedIn is a great platform for doing that kind of networking. Yeah, um, you can do that same process on LinkedIn without the in-person aspect for sure. But I, I, you know, I can attest to the fact that there's a different power to in-person events and in-person meeting people. That's it. There's, we're human, and uh, and uh, I think the first thing, the first even non-verbal communication is the the the. The, that interaction, the shaking of hands, the the you know eye to eye, there's some, there's something else there, but it's not it's not a uh, it's not necessary uh, obligatorily. Um, now <clears throat> you're going to say something. Go ahead. I was just, yeah, and that can help or hinder um, mm-hmm. for sure. It can. Now one one aspect that at least for me is important is uh, I th- I feel a, a certain amount of us who go to grad school, at least that I've known at least identify as introverts. And if you are going to a live event, let's say two, three days, do add in to your schedule recovery time if you need it. And, and you know, because you, you won't be having great interactions if you're drained, if your battery is, <laughs> is low, let's say. Um, so do, do, do think of that if you are going into a, an in-person setting, but, uh, too much, per, you know, in-person interaction drains you. I, I, I feel you were you were going to react to this. Oh yeah, no, I completely agree. One of the things that I've actually done for years is I never, I very seldom stay at the conference hotel. I try and stay at a different hotel because that it's just a, a boundary marker for me. It helps me make that transition from conference space to uh, my space exactly. Um, and I, I couldn't agree, agree more with that. And it's it's heartening to see. I actually I'm a yoga teacher as well, um, and I have actually taught uh, yoga sessions at conferences. Uh, you know, breathing and chair yoga and that kind of thing. It is heartening to see that a lot of conference organizers are beginning to build in some of those uh, opportunities to regulate your nervous system, which is really what we're talking about here. You you. And if the conference doesn't do that for you, there are lots of simple ways you can do that for yourself. Yeah, yeah. and staying off-site is a great one. I, I, I never thought of that. <laughs> of course, sometimes cheaper too. It's possible. Sometimes cheaper, uh, but if it's possible too. Now we're really, really reaching the end of the interview, and this has been great. It feels like time flew. Um, it really has, <laughs> hasn't it? <laughs> but um, uh, one thing that I, I maybe like to finish on, on this note again of uh, trying to have some some tips and tricks for for the listeners um i mentioned at the, at the very beginning uh in your intro uh that um you know you want to help people build a sustainable niche in cme ce uh and and there's two aspects to this that i find that we could you know finish on which is the sustainable part and the niche part i'm really always interested when people talk about how to how to create a niche or the importance of having a niche for what you do today uh, in, in any domain, be it in podcasting, be it now, like you're saying, in, in medical writing. So I don't know if, if you can, uh, in, 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 a, in a few minutes, tell, tell us what you mean by a sustainable CME niche um, and, and, how, and maybe give two or, two, two or three of, of the advice that you usually share to help people you know, point themselves towards that objective. Yeah, um, in in two minutes or less. Um, yeah, so I, I I am a proponent of niches um, for a couple of reasons. One is it allows you to 
uh, you know, and they're related. I'm not even sure if there are two reasons. It really allows you to dial into uh, a particular, you know, it could be a subject area, it could be a disease state, it could be a therapeutic area, it could be a particular type of client. So for instance, maybe you just want to work for medical societies. That's a niche. Um, maybe you just want to work in cardiology or neurology. Um, that can be your 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 niche. And I think one of the things that that um, defining some type of niche for yourself does is it conserves your energy. You know, in CME, you can be working on all sorts of different projects, and that's great. Uh, it, it, it's it's it certainly feeds creativity but it can also be exhausting. Some of these projects are incredibly detailed. You're writing a thesis in four weeks and then you're moving on to the next thesis, literally, because you have to take such a deep dive into, into the material. And so I think that if you limit your limit, yeah, that can be a really negative word, but if you build a boundary around the types of projects that you want to work on or the types of clients you want to work on or the disease state, then you are conserving your energy so that you can really invest the best of yourself in, in, in that niche. The other part of that is you're also building authority and expertise. Um, and I think that that be becomes really important because going back to the conferences, you don't have to just go as an attendee. You can start to go as a presenter, start submitting abstracts, start building um, your expertise and authority in your field so that your potential clients really know who you are and you're you're going to have to do less of those um you know reaching out to people before a conference to meet them for the first time because people will already know who you are i think that's really valuable um and faster you can do the work faster that's the other part of it and so you make more money and i guess if you are conserving energy creating authority, you are building that sustainability because you are also not going to be spread out trying to do everything. You're in, in, and uh, even your promotion can be more focused and less, uh, you know, shotgun, you know, uh, left and right. Um, so, so how, how do you, what's, what does a sustainable uh, career in CME look, look like? Let's say people have started, they worked with you a little bit and now they have a sustainable, uh, or they, they at least for the moment are are in a sustainable um, stretch of their uh, career in medical writing. What does that look like? What, what does what do you like your coaches to to look like once they've they've gone through that process? Well, you know, we 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 establish those kind of goals uh, on a case by case basis. But I think that sustainability is. Um, you know, having a stable group of clients, you don't need many, maybe five or six um, from whom you can expect uh, uh, momentum and a stream of work over the course of um, the course of a year. And you also have space in your schedule to add in smaller projects from new clients that maybe you want to test out at different points in in the year. So I think the first part of sustainability is having you know, a stable group of clients doesn't have to be a huge group, but at least 
you know, a small group that you, you're pretty sure you can count on. Now, that stable group might change every couple of years. And that's why marketing is so important. Consistent marketing is so important. Um, but having a core group, making sure that you have that kind of core group, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, like any other field, and of course, at the moment, um, many fields are like this, there's a lot of flux in uh, in in the industry. Uh, your clients might, they might move job. Um, your The company might uh, disintegrate. Um, there's always a lot of change. And so sustainability means that you have some um, pieces in place to make sure that when you lose one client, you know where to look for that replacement. And again, you know, marketing is key here. And when I say marketing, I'm still talking about that relationship building piece, keeping those connections open, following up with people on a regular basis, whether that's a phone call once a quarter or an email or a newsletter or sending people um, an article that you've come across that they you think they're going to enjoy. You know, all these things are just threads of connection that are part of keeping that marketing momentum going uh, to help you build that sustainable niche. And then I think the third pillar is really your your personal and business well-being. Thinking about things like um, energy and time, thinking about the course of your working year, um, when, you know, the, the times in year when you know you have more energy than others, the times of year when you know there's going to be more money uh, in your clients, than others you know end of the year people are they got money to spend they're trying to get projects rushed which is great if you have energy at the end of the year i do not i do not want to be taking on new projects in november and december because i know i'm already tired um so so having that self-knowledge about the energy of your business over the course of a year and your personal energy um i think is a kind of key uh, part of the sustainability piece and what you're doing to fill your own cup, whether that's movement practices, journaling, uh, meditation, whatever, whatever you do, going for walks, whatever you do to make sure that your energy is um, not getting depleted on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. Excellent. It feels like a, like a, I've, I've been having a, a CME yoga class with you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, it, it's. Um, kind of summing up uh, some main points of this conversation it, they, they do feel a bit yogic so you you find you found a domain where you felt there was there was alignment and this mm -hmm. kind of yoga is about alignment yeah uh, we talked it about it can be you talk you just talked about conserving your energy in terms of the the 12 month calendar and knowing when you know when you can can go 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 and when it's not right for you that it's kind of yogic too in a way and i'm sorry to now somehow aligning this to, to yoga but you mentioned no i love it that's great it. works for and, me and, <laughs> and that you and that you, you you've you've taught it um and and then uh one thing that i you know we didn't we en passant you you, you en passant you mentioned it that seeing someone teach teach something led you to, to understand okay this is my this might be for me and i imagine that if i if we started another another hour of conversation and i went back and i said okay at this point who were the people who were influential i'm sure you would have different people 
uh, that, that were key at different points in, in this journey that you just mentioned. And I think in yoga also there's this transmission of, of disciple to, to student. Anyway, I, I'm, I, I wonder if it's too uh, poetic for me now at the end of the interview, but it really kind of, it kind of gelled for me as you were talking that uh, f from what you said, and again, looking back, it's always 2020, and, uh, but of course when you were living through it, it was chaotic, like you said, it was patchy, like you said. But I think from what you said, trying to respect your interests, trying to trust that what, if you've done a PhD, you have a lot to, to bring on the table um, and to, of course, you'll have to learn other things, other languages, all the, other cultures, but trust that all you've done so far is, uh, you know, is enough for the next step. Um, I really, really enjoyed all you had to, to, to say uh, on that side, and I'm, I'm really grateful that, that you that you came in and shared it with us. I, I wonder whether you have a last uh, word of inspiration for someone who's really now looking for uh, their first, uh, you know, foot in the door in in the CME domain. But if not, I'm already satisfied with all that you've shared so far. You know, the thing that came to mind, uh, which is a yogic saying, and I can't remember who who said it, is the obstacle is the way. I think it's actually a Buddhist saying. Um, and, you know, for me, that that absolutely rings rings true. And it's it's not a bad thing. It just means that you have to you have stuff to figure out. And isn't that what doing a PhD is all about? Oh, yes, <laughs> it is. Uh, Alex, this has been great. If someone just listened or, or watched, uh, watched this interview and wants to reach out to you, what's the best place i have i'm sharing here on on video your website www.alexhausen.com also on the website you can find uh, alex's podcast called right medicine uh, so it's alexhausen.com slash right dash medicine dash podcast but if someone wants to reach out to you ask you questions about medical writing about uh, uh, uh you know cme specifically uh, or about yoga, who knows? <laughs> Where's the best place to find you and to reach out to you? Um, I am on LinkedIn. That's the main social platform that, that I'm on, um, Alex House. And I'm, I'm, I was going to say I'm easy to find, but there's actually another Alex House. Um, <laughs> but it's Alexandra House and PhD, comma, CHCP. Um, uh, you can also email me at alex at alexhausen.com. I answer everyone's emails. That is super easy, and I will add that. Uh, I will add the links in the show notes too. Alex, this was great. I had a great time talking with you. I think it was a very because uh, you know CME and the it's like regulatory and and, and even medical writing can get very technical. Uh, we did uh, for a little a few minutes there. We were a little bit more technical, but I think uh, you really brought the the human aspect of how you went through this transition from uh, from academia to finding this career and to now helping people find a career in this domain um i really really enjoyed uh, my this hour with you and, uh, and oh, i, I did too david for, for spending it with me here and with the audience of behind beyond the thesis thank you i appreciate it it was uh, such a delight to be asked thank you for listening to another beyond the thesis conversation with me David Mendez, and my guest, Alex Hausen. If you found any value in this conversation, please share it with someone like you and help Beyond the Thesis reach as many ears as possible. And if you want to help a little bit more, please go to papaphd.com forward slash audience 
and fill in the survey that is there for you and leave a comment so I can give you a shout out in a future episode. Thank you for being a fan, happy listening and happy sharing.